0: with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. We're back in Galatians. We're going to be in the vicinity of Galatians 2, 1 through 10, reaching a little bit ahead, a little bit behind. But I'm only going to read Galatians 2, 1 through 10 right now. Galatians 2, 1 through 10. In your pew Bible, I say pews, we have seatback Bibles. In your seatback Bible, this is on uh, one one five four, and if you're able uh, to stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Galatians two one through ten. This is God's word. Then after fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, Peter, And John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So far the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Father, as our Savior prayed for us, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Show us Christ and his grace in this passage. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, transform us by that grace into people who know you and follow you more and more every day. We ask all of this with the confidence that you hear our prayers for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. Well, let's suppose uh, you're taking a trip in the car. Maybe you're going on a grocery run. Maybe you're going on a road trip going down to the National Mall, going on a field trip or something, and you hear a voice from the back seat that says, I spy with my little eye. And some of you are wincing already. Because as you know, dear driver, there are only so many things that you as the driver can spy with your little eye before you go careening into the ditch or you miss a turn. It's only so long you can play this game. It's only so many times you can say, I spy something black. The road, yes, you got it, right? It's fun for a minute or two, and that's about it. Well, today we're back in this passage that we began last week, and we have a, we have a really interesting cast of characters, uh, some of whom are playing a game of I spy with my little eye. Uh, but the stakes are way higher in this game, way higher than when you have to endure a game of I spy on the road. Uh, the stakes have to do with grace and the freedom of Grace and justification and what it means to be made right with God. Not unlike I spy after a minute or two, their I spy with my little eye game is not a fun game. Not even for a minute or two. I would venture a guess that uh, many, if not most of us here, um, kind of thinking about why does this passage matter for us? Uh, Most of us, I think all of us really, would say we're doing our utmost to follow Jesus. We're doing our utmost to follow him. I think we're all about that. Uh, We're following Jesus, we're trying to figure out how to follow Jesus better. Uh, But correct me if I'm wrong, uh, sometimes there's an underlying fear in that, isn't there? A fear that can creep up. What if I'm not doing enough? Uh, What if you're following Jesus, but uh, you missed a step along the way? What then? Has it all been for nothing? You ask ask yourself, knowing that you believe in Jesus and you put your faith in Jesus uh, for your salvation... Uh, is it all enough or should I be doing something more? And then the I spy with my little eye crowd has you wondering, did I miss it? Have I missed something? Is there something more? What if missing it sends me careening into the ditch of failed Jesus followers and that's the end of the good news for me? Well, the freedom robbing eye spy with my little eye crowd that shows up in this passage, they're really good at their game. They're experts in coming up with a way to rob the freedom that the gospel gives. And by adding to the gospel, they send Christ's little flock right back into the bondage that we've been saved out of. So I've titled today's message Freedom Spies because I think it really gets at uh, what's going on as Paul explains it in Galatians 2, 1 through 10, particularly in the case of Titus, which we're going to look at. Uh, freedom Spies, that's the problem Paul's resisting here, and I want us to think about that today. Uh, Not only do I want us to think about what the freedom spies were after, uh, since that will give us another window into what Paul is really all about in the letter to the Galatians, uh, but I also want us to think about why we should resist them like the plague. And we'll also see how the freedom that grace gives compels us to love. It compels us to love others in sacrificial service. Maybe it sounds like a contradiction, but the freedom of grace never lets us off the hook. Uh, we're off the hook when it comes to obtaining God's favor, but grace never lets us off the hook when it comes to living outward-facing lives of love. So that's where we're going today. We're going to think about why Paul resists the freedom spies and what that means for us. Uh, We'll look at three questions and two takeaways. Three questions and two takeaways. First things first, then, I want to look with you about uh, at this case with Titus, the case of Titus, and what's really going on in Galatia and we'll ask three questions to get at what's going on. Three questions. First question, what's the real problem Paul is addressing uh, in the letter to the Galatians? We're going to get to the passage, uh, but first we have to set the stage here. Uh, We have to set the stage for Paul's standoff with the freedom spies. We have to ask the question, what's the real problem that Paul's addressing in Galatians? What's Galatians all about? I like the way Stephen Westerholm puts it. He says, justification by faith is the answer, what's the question? What's the question? So to prime the pump, let's hear Paul's answer from Galatians 2.16, and then we'll think about the question. Here's the answer. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. That's the answer. So what's the question that Paul's answering with justified by faith? Well, if you've been in a Protestant church for very long, your answer is probably something along the lines of, well, the question of how sinners can be made right with God, of course. The Westminster Shorter Catechism gives a wonderful answer uh, in this way. Question and answer 33. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone so that's the standard answer coming out of the reformation whether you're presbyterian lutheran anglican even many baptists too i was a baptist long enough that i can say that Uh, but from where we sit uh, that's the question paul's answering how is one made right with god justification by faith is the answer how can people like us personally guilty before a holy God and under the just condemnation of God due to our sins, how can people like that be made right with him? And all of the weight of the answer rests on two little words in the catechism, only and alone, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So the Reformation approach to what was troubling the Galatians, our understanding of the question uh, that justification answers is how are we made right with God? Justification by faith alone. But not everyone understands it this way. Let me give you an example. This is from N.T. Wright in his book, The Challenge of Jesus. I want you to listen carefully to what Wright says. And I think you may know by now, I really don't try to bring up debates uh, for no reason, um, I don't want to, this pulpit to be about esoteric quibbling over theological minutiae, uh, but this is a point of view that you'll come across if you're reading popular Bible study uh, materials. It's made its way from academia into the pulpits and onto the bookshelves. I think that right is wrong here, but you should hear it in his own words. He says that the debates between Jesus and the Pharisees, or Paul and the Pharisees, or at least Paul and the Galatian problem, He says, these debates aren't so much because Jesus believed in justification by faith, while they, the Pharisees, believed in justification by works, but that he was calling them to abandon their frantic, paranoid self-defense. To leave off their frantic, paranoid self-defense. In other words, who led all these Gentiles in here? That was the big problem that was addressed in Acts 15. We've looked at that not too long ago. Uh, Jesus and Paul are saying, according to this view that I'm referring to, Stop trying to wall off membership in the people of God, you know, restricting it to just people who follow Jewish customs. It's bigger than that. Well, of course it's bigger than that. And of course that was part of the problem. But it wasn't the only question, nor was it the only question that Paul answers in Galatians. And we'll see that time and again as we go through Galatians. So Wright and others who share this view would say that the question that justification by faith answers is not how to be made right with God, but how can Gentiles be a part of the community? Things like being made righteous by faith in Jesus, frankly, go out the window. Things like the righteousness of Christ given to us by faith, those are set aside. What it becomes is, what Paul refers to as justification by faith, is you're in the community. It's first justification. And then you're justified on the last day by faith and the good works the Spirit does in and through you. So Galatians becomes not about the doctrine of salvation so much as about the question of the church. Who belongs to God's people? I want to look at this because last week we did make the point that the gospel is for everyone. It's for Warrenton, Virginia as much as it is for Jerusalem. You don't have to become Jewish to come to Jesus. That's certainly true, but the gospel that Paul preaches isn't merely about how to belong to God's people. It wasn't just about breaking down the barriers between Jews and Gentiles. It isn't just about overcoming exclusivity, that the Gentiles can be in the covenant without needing to take up all of the Jewish distinctives. It's about more than that. It's about God's solution for the personal problem of sin and condemnation. In fact, as we'll see, even in the case of Titus, Paul will argue not just that you don't have to become a Jew to to come to the Jewish Messiah, Rather, you must not become a Jew if that's how you're coming to the Jewish Messiah for redemption, for salvation, for justification. You must not add to the works works of the Mosaic Law to your faith in order to be justified. If you do that, you're done for. Galatians 5.4, he says it clearly. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. That doesn't sound like a winning situation to me. So why is this important? Well, when you start from the wrong question, really from any other place than how can a sinner be made right with God, you end up misunderstanding what Paul is all about in Galatians. You misunderstand the answer he gives, and you miss the good news of grace by faith alone in Jesus. Inevitably, what happens, whether it's the Roman Catholic view of justification by faith formed by love, or this new perspective view that right holds to, of justification by faith, uh, which means entering the covenant by faith and staying in the covenant to an extent by works, Uh, he says it really plainly, whereas present justification is according to faith, future justification is according to works. Or even a popular and helpful preacher that I've appreciated over the years who says justification by faith, yes, but there is in the very nature of saving faith some kind of affectional love element. Uh, An element of love in the nature of faith that will factor in to a final justification. Whatever you're looking at, and whichever version of this you're dealing with, what happens is like clockwork, works get pulled back into faith. And then it does not become faith alone. And then your assurance is zapped. And you're constantly running on the hamster wheel of Am I good enough? Is the Spirit working in me enough? Have I done enough good things? Do I love God enough? Am I seeing enough growth? This it's this hamster wheel that robs you of your assurance, and the freedom spies win. Over against all of those things, we preach Christ crucified, the wisdom and power of God, the one who knew no sin, but for our sake became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The freedom spies must be resisted at all costs. That's what we're setting up here. So I've kind of stated our understanding of the problem. And what's at stake. But we need to look to scripture now and see the gospel that Paul preaches. And then see how it shows up in this flashpoint over Titus and circumcision. And we'll see if this holds true to scripture. So let's ask another question now. Let's get at what Paul's saying. What the gospel is that he's preaching. Second question. What's the gospel message Paul preaches? And for this I want to reach back to Galatians 1, 1 through 10. Uh, I want to juxtapose two things that Paul says about himself uh, and I think it will help us to unpack this. So notice what he says. Look back at Galatians 1, 13 and 14. Galatians 1, 13 and 14. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So Paul is this consummate Pharisee. He was all about the traditions of the fathers. He was a star pupil right at the front of the class. He knew more than anyone what Judaism was all about. And then by God's grace, he was radically taken out of being a Pharisee and made the foremost missionary of God's grace to the Gentiles. God called him by grace to preach this gospel to the nations. Well, what's the gospel he preached? Well, look down at verse 23, Galatians 1, verse 23. We read about this last week, thought about it just for a moment. But this was the gospel that was getting back to Judea. They hadn't met Paul in person, but they're hearing rumors. The Judean Christians say, or he says about them, they were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. It's important to note what Paul is preaching here. How do they describe it? He's preaching not only that Gentiles can come to Jesus without becoming like Jews, he's preaching the faith. Fesco puts it really well in his commentary. He says, The people to whom Paul preached said that he was preaching the faith. In other words, salvation comes not through our obedience, but by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Our salvation is not introspective, where we look within to our own abilities and our own obedience. Rather, our salvation is extrospective, in that we look without to the abilities and the obedience of Christ. Again, remember that crucial verse that summarizes Paul's gospel, Galatians 2.16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Going back to Westerholm, uh, he really underscores this, this antithesis between uh consummate Pharisee Paul and preacher of the faith Paul. He says, in Paul's view, the community of those who believe in Jesus represents an alternative, even a rival to Judaism. He once showed his zeal for the latter by persecuting the former, and then he abandoned his life in Judaism when he began to preach the faith he once tried to destroy. For Paul, devotion to Judaism means devotion to the ancestral laws of the Jews and the pursuit of the righteousness that is based on observing them. In short, Judaism is life within the framework of the Mosaic Covenant. And Paul by no no means denies that that is of divine origin, but he sees it as a temporary thing. It's a temporary stage in the history of God dealing with his people. Judaism, as Paul employs the term, belongs to the past. Again, we're teasing out themes that Paul will unpack later in the letter. But Paul is preaching the faith, faith in Christ over against his former life of Judaism, over against his former approach to God where he was trying to be the best lawkeeper that he could possibly be in order to gain favor with God. So that's the gospel that Paul preaches in a nutshell. And he's going to bring the full weight of his apostolic authority and his rhetorical skill and his emotional turmoil and anguish over these dear saints in Galatia to bear On this for the rest of the the epistle. Uh, But we see the gospel on display really clearly early in the letter in the case of Titus. We're getting to the case of Titus now. So Paul stands his ground for Titus against circumcision. I'm sure Titus no doubt appreciated it, but why does Paul stand his ground for Titus against circumcision? That's an important question. Why does he stand his ground on this point against the freedom spies? So that's the third question. What's the real reason Paul stands his ground here? Why does Paul stand his ground for Titus and the gospel? Paul is reaching a fever pitch here, and he's just getting started with the letter. So let's refresh our memories. Go back to chapter 2, verses 3 to (coughs) 5. Chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. We read, "...but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom..." There it is, the freedom spies, who slipped in to spy out what we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Well, what's going on here? Uh, I referenced this situation last week, but there were many times, if you remember some of the stories of Paul and his journeys, there were many times that Paul would practically bend over backwards if it meant that it would serve his purposes for the gospel. Paul is fine with a lot if it means gaining an audience in order uh, to preach the gospel. I guess that's giving a lot of credit to Paul, though, because I'm thinking primarily about when Timothy, his other companion, uh, who is half Greek, um, he needs to be circumcised, or the Jews that they're going to minister to would not listen to him, would not give him an audience. So fine, Timothy can be circumcised, Paul says. It's like, gee, thanks, buddy. Uh, But that's not a line that Paul is, he's like, that's fine. That's fine. For the sake of the gospel, it's okay. There are times when Paul would allow for things that in other contexts he wouldn't. Uh, There are times to eat meat that is offered to idols. After all, they're just sticks and stones. But there are other times when it's best to hold back your freedom for the sake of love. So there are these judgment calls that Paul is constantly referring to and making as he preaches the gospel. But here, In this context, this is a a bridge too far for Paul. This is a line in the sand. In the Galatian context, with this false gospel and message that's being preached, Paul takes a brick wall stance against this. This is not happening. Titus will not receive the sign of of circumcision, of inclusion into the Old Covenant community. But why? Well, he tells us why. Look at verse 5. He says, To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So when Paul consented to Timothy being circumcised, it was because they they had a gospel mission uh, to to carry out. They were on a mission to reach Jews with the gospel. Timothy had to be able to freely move in and among these people. In that case, it was the problem of the gospel uh, being proclaimed freely. But in this case, Paul is resistant and will not budge because he is preserving the integrity and the freedom of the gospel itself. And Paul is really bothered by this. He's not making a lot of sense, in fact. Our English Bible translations try to smooth it out, most of them. The ESV actually is a little bit stilted, and that's kind of how it reads in the original. He kind of goes down one route, and then he interjects something else, and then he doesn't pick up his thought again, and he keeps going. We're not exactly sure. Because of all that, how these freedom spies got into the church or what exactly they were doing, how they were going about their business. But he gets the point across, this is not going to happen. This is not going to happen. A friend of mine who pastors in San Diego, Adriel Sanchez, he writes this in this great Bible study through Galatians, and it helps helps me anyway understand why. He says, in this context, the verses we're looking at, Paul uses for the first time terms that become central later in this letter freedom and slavery. This group apparently insisted that Titus be circumcised. They wanted, Paul says, to bring us into slavery. Circumcision represents slavery. Circumcision wasn't an isolated ritual. It represented entrance into a whole religious system. It represented a different way of salvation, a different gospel, and for Paul, this system is slavery. So it's intriguing, isn't it? With Timothy, circumcision is no big deal to Paul. But with Titus, it was an unfathomable addition to the gospel. It's unthinkable. Any addition to the gospel perverts the gospel. It's sola fide, or solo nada, as we would say in Spanish. Faith alone, or just nothing. That's where Paul's taking his stand. He's all or nothing on this point. Now, I highly doubt that any of us will face the same sort of struggle with freedom spies adding this kind of gospel distortion to the message, Not in precisely the same way, but this should all bring us a great amount of hope and encouragement. So let's review. First, Paul gives justified by faith as the answer to the question, how can man be made right with God? We know this because he contrasts his former life of Judaism and Jewish law-keeping with the faith that he now preaches. And it's on full display when he resists Titus being circumcised. Even when in other contexts he's okay with the idea, can't happen here because it's a matter of the gospel. It was proposed by these, these spies who had slipped in to distort the gospel and to steal the freedom that they had through grace. So, what do we do with all of that today? What does it matter for us today? Is this just, it seems a little distant. Well, two takeaways I want to leave you with. First, don't return, never, never ever return to old man law. To old man law. And I don't mean wearing tube socks with your sneakers or groaning when you stand up or wearing floppy hats when you do yard work. Not that kind of old man law. What I mean here is the relationship with the law that you had outside of Christ. The relationship with the law that you had when you were still living according to the flesh and you had not been made alive by the Spirit. Uh, Freedom spies are everywhere trying to get you back to old man law. They're probably not going to try you uh, with the same tricks as they were trying to get the Galatians, uh, but they will try and draw you back to bondage and slavery with any number of gospel and ideas. Ideas like gospel and thou shall and shalt not to be made right with God. Gospel and social justice. Gospel and Dave Ramsey. Gospel and shopping local. Gospel and voting Republican. Gospel and teetotaling. Gospel and homeschooling. Never let anyone smuggle works of any kind into how you are made right with God, into how you are justified, whether it's God's good commandments or man's ideas and human opinions. No works of any kind can be smuggled into your relationship with God and how you have merited and received that favor. It is not because of you or anything that you could possibly do. It's justification by faith alone. It's only on the basis of faith in the finished work of Christ. We'll see in a minute, that doesn't mean that there's nothing for you to do in the Christian life, but that can never be brought in to how you are made right with God, and it can never be allowed to affect how you feel that God feels about you based on your ups and your downs of obedience. Jesus really meant it when he said, it is finished. So if the law ever, you know, sneaks in and works sneak into your relationship with God in that way, you'll find that it steals your assurance. It's debilitating. Uh, There was a time when the law towered over you in condemnation, threatening to crush you like Sinai. But that's old man law. That's how you related to the law before. On this side of faith in Jesus, the only time that the law will ever feel like it's towering over you to condemn you or feel like it's squashing you like a bug is when you're boneheaded enough to give in to the tendency to want to pitch in for God's favor and to do something to try to merit your relationship with God. And then you're relying on your self-righteousness, and the law will come, and it will smack that idea down. You'll never sense it when you feel like you're doing a good job, but it's when you fail miserably that you'll think, who in the world could want me now? Could God want me now? How can I ever be made right with God? In moments like that, when Christian, your faith is in Christ, but you feel about this big, you've returned to old man law, But it's faith and faith alone that has united you to Christ. It's by faith and faith alone that you've been made right with God. So let me share this advice with you from Puritan Thomas Brooks. It's one of my favorite, favorite quotes. Hear what he says. He says, Say to the law and to the justice of God, if I owe you anything, go to my Christ who has undertaken for me. I must not sit down discouraged under the apprehension of those debts that Christ to the very last penny has fully satisfied. Fully satisfied by Christ. So, don't go back to old man law. The freedom spies must never win. So don't go back to old man law. Second and final takeaway, don't neglect new man love. New man love. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. I don't want us to miss this. Verses 9 and 10, look at what Paul says here. When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. It's quite remarkable, really, how Paul's ministry among the Gentiles, uh, it really becomes a lifeline of physical support to help the Jewish believers. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Some have connected this request with the visit to Uh, recorded in Acts 11 to Jerusalem when the Spirit foretold foretold of this great famine that was going to come upon the whole uh, known world. And the disciples in Antioch, uh, they determined to send relief uh, to the region of Judea. Judea. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, they took that relief. Uh, But it wasn't the only time. This was something that was characteristic of Paul's ministry. In fact, it was characteristic of the early church. You read early writings describing what the church is like in those early days, in those first the first century or two. Uh, God had redeemed these Gentiles out of pagan practices to love God and love one another, and people noticed. It looked different. There's an anonymous letter to someone named Diognetus, and this is written just about a hundred years after Galatians. It's not scripture, but it's telling. He says, there is something extraordinary about their lives. They share their meals, but not their wives. They live in poverty, but enrich many, That's how God turned around the lives of these pagan Gentiles, living a life of service and love to others. This is where all of this gets into the 9 to 5 of your calling, of your vocation, whether that's as an educator or a realtor or a government employee or a mom or a dad. Whatever your vocation is, this is where rubber meets the road. Luther put it so well in The Freedom of the Christian when he said, We should be guided in all our works by this one thought alone that we may serve and benefit others in everything that's done, having nothing else before our eyes except the need and advantage of the neighbor. And when he says nothing else before your eyes, he means having nothing else before your eyes, not even how is this relating to God and making me more acceptable to him. It should only be how will this serve my neighbor because you're already righteous in Jesus. You're already made right with God by faith in him. So you're eager to remember the poor, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, the downcast, the marginalized, the people others cross the street to try to avoid. That's who you're all about. Luther says in his commentary on Galatians that there's two kinds of righteousness. The righteousness of Christ that we receive by faith alone. This is freely given by faith. It's this heavenly righteousness. But I want you to hear in closing uh, what Luther says about how this heavenly freedom from this heavenly righteousness, how it sends us out into the world and how it frees us to love our neighbor, not worrying about how it affects our relationship with God, but out of love and the freedom that grace and acceptance with God gives. Luther says, When I have this righteousness reigning in my heart, I descend from heaven as the rain making the earth fruitful. That is to say, I come forth into another kingdom and I do good works, how and whensoever occasion is offered. If I be a minister of the word, I preach. I preach. I comfort the brokenhearted. I administer the sacraments. If I be the head of a household, I govern my house and my family. I bring my children up in the knowledge and fear of God. If I be a magistrate, the charge that is given me from above, I diligently execute. If I be a servant, I do my master's business faithfully. To conclude, anyone who is assuredly persuaded that Christ is his righteousness does not only cheerfully and gladly work well in his vocation, but also submits himself through love to the magistrates and to their laws, even if they're severe, sharp, and cruel, and if necessity requires to all manner of burdens and dangers in this present life, because he knows that this is the will of God and that this obedience pleases him. So, friends, the righteousness of God by faith frees us from the fear of God's wrath so that we can serve and love our neighbor according to the new man that we are in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for your flock here at Heritage Presbyterian Church, that you would protect tender consciences from those who would rob them of their freedom by bringing them back to the old man way of relating to the law and good works. Give us the gospel confidence to stand firm in freedom, the freedom of full assurance because of the finished work of Jesus, and the freedom of loving lives that serve our neighbor for their good and for your glory. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.